Okay. Okay. Psalm 89. Um, Psalm 89 can be divided into three distinct parts. Three distinct parts. Psalm 89, verses 1 through 18, is a beautiful statement of praise of God. It is just absolutely beautiful. It will describe God in glowing terms, in majestic terms. And so it's a great statement of praise. Psalm 89, verses 19 through 37, emphasizes God's covenant with David. It will stress God's covenant with David. And Psalm 89, verses 38 through 52, will basically ask what happened what happened to your promises today. It seems like many of the statements that were made about God's covenant with David in verses 19-37 are almost reversed. And history has played out to be the exact opposite of what one would have expected considering that those promises in God's covenant. And now, a couple of things you notice about this right off. One of the things we have seen about the book of Psalms, this is true of individual Psalms. This is true of the book as a whole. That the book moves from lament, mourning, pouring out one's grief, it moves from lament to praise. Now, let me give you some specific illustration. Psalm 13, verses 1 through 4, is lament. But verses 5 through 6 ends with a note of praise. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21, is a strong note of lament. But verses 22 through 31 end in praise. The individual psalms move from lament to praise. That is true not just of the individual psalms, that is true of the book as a whole. For example, in book one of the psalms, book one are psalms 1 through 41. And in 1 through 41, I think that there are 19 individual laments. 19 individual laments. Now, how in there are only a couple of psalms, I don't remember the exact number, I'm putting a question mark there, but a couple of psalms of praise. But by the time we get to the last book of the Psalms, book 5, which is Psalms 107 to 150, it is the opposite. I believe there's one individual lament and 
I don't even know the number, but the last six are just straight psalms of praise, and there are a whole lot of others. But, 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 but praise is the strong emphasis on this. So while individual psalms move from lament to praise, the whole book moves from lament to praise. This turns that on its head. Did you see that? It moves from praise to lament. Now, we may not get as many psalms this year as we've gotten in the last couple. Um, uh, I believe the first year we got up to about 35. Second year we got up to about 69 or 70. But I'll tell you one thing we've done this year that we hadn't done those previous years. We've, we've covered a whole book of psalms. Because book three of the psalms, book three was... 73 to I guess I should pause by saying that because tonight we're just going to cover the first 18 verses. Uh, but this psalm is so big that it, I don't want to rush it. And I want us to soak it in because these affirmations that he makes about God's power in God's greatness, these affirmations that he makes in praise will not fit the historical circumstances that he's living in in verses 38 through 52. I want to tell you, I know how this is. In the midst of problems, our problems look so enormous that God almost disappears. This psalm begins with a big God. In spite of the fact that his problems are real, the problems of the nation are real. In spite of that, his God is still big. And he keeps that front and center in spite of of other difficulties. So there's a little introduction. I apologize uh, that I did not look back up the exact number of praise psalms and those. But this book has been a sad book. Book three is a sad book of the psalms. And uh, a lot of it dealing with this time around Babylonian captivity in 587 or so BC. I am looking around, and does anybody know, John, do any of you know if we've got more black markers here? No. Uh, I, I was thinking we'd get some more in here. Yes, God. So, so what you're saying then is this isn't necessarily the time of David. This would be after him. Yes. If, we, if you're talking about the Babylonian captivity, that's sometime after David is king. Yes. Yes, I, I, I think so. I think you're right. You notice in the title, Scott, it does not mention David at all. It mentions Ethan the Ezrahite, and we're not 100% sure who he is. Uh, but the reason that I date it is because of the time frame that's mentioned in the book where the king in verses 38 through 52 has been defeated and broken. But yes, we would be dating this 
later than David. I think a lot of these psalms, the only one of these psalms in book 3 that is specifically attributed to David is Psalm 86. Thank you. Thank you, David. Psalm 86 is the only one that is specifically attributed to David in book 3. So, so is, is the Psalms, the Psalms themselves, told, did it kind of end up becoming a tradition after David? In other words, he maybe got the, the idea started and then it was just carried on by, by rabbis going forward? Okay. He is the sweet psalmist of Israel, as he's called. And David is mentioned, and David will be mentioned in this psalm, but more from the standpoint of his descendants. David is mentioned in 73 of the 150 Psalms. He's mentioned, and that's that's in the headings talking about. In the headings, he's mentioned in um, Psalm um, in, in 73 of them. Now, the Psalms seem today, the Psalms seem today. What class was it? Was that OTP? Oh, does this bring back my opinion? <laughs> but this was a lot of the introduction. It was uh, the Psalms seem today, Scott, uh, almost 1,000 years. Okay? Almost 1,000. Psalm 90 in the title mentions Moses. Now Moses, we're dealing with a time around 1445 B.C. And then you have Psalms like Psalm 126. 126, uh, the statement is made. Um, 126, when the Lord brought the captive ones out of Zion, we were like those who dream. And uh, so they're being restored from captivity, and he's just rejoicing at that. And that was around 539 B.C. So you see the Psalms were written over a period of almost a thousand years. There's a heavy concentration of them during the time of David as he was one that God skilled with this ability to, to do this. and um, But yes, there were psalmists after David. And that's why I said when growing up, a lot of people, I heard when preachers would mention the psalms, they would be non-committal. A lot of times they'd just say the psalmist, you know, and not say David or uh, something like that. Because yes, there were you know, more than half are not mentioned with David in the title. So, does that help you? Some, but but we all we believe ultimately, whoever the human author, that God was the ultimate author of Scripture. That that what you have in the Psalms is you have these men pouring out their problems to God, but God is inspiring them and using their words and choosing their words so that those words would be an encouragement to his people who experience the same circumstances throughout time. So, okay, thank you very much for that question. Anything else? Get out of the way. Get out of the way? Okay. <laughs>
Yeah, with boards, so it's, oh, so it's kind of like a picture. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> okay. Um, let's read Psalm 89, 1 through 18. It's the statement of praise. And I want to ask you, are there some words that stand out here in this section? Some vocabulary that stands out. But in verse, the, the heading, a mascal, a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. I will make a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? And who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of his holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crush Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm. Your, your hand is mighty. Your right hand exalt is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Now, I did notice one thing I meant to say that I did. At least one thing. That covenant with David, this middle section, what this is, is a poetic, poetic telling of 2 Samuel 7. Some of that will work into what we do tonight. Lord willing, we won't get there until next week. I don't know whether we're going to break that down or whether we're going to uh, cover those last two parts together. But, but the central part of this psalm is a poetic retelling of 2 Samuel 7. Um, the uh, teacher, Phil Roberts in the Old Testament, a teacher, had used to say 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. <laughs> Somebody knocked at the door, so 
know. Okay. So that's what that's about. But it was not good. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Yeah. Not we'll just. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll just keep teaching if there's only one of you left here. So. Okay. Um. We and anybody else want to take a picture of that because you're you're free to if you want to. Not that that uh, is greatly done, but I wanted to use some of this board to stress what I asked you a moment ago. What are the key words? What are the key words of? Psalm um, 89, those key words that, that stood out to you in that section. Vicki? Faithfulness. The term faithfulness. Okay? Steadfast love. Okay? Steadfast love. Now, if you had the New American Standard like me, it was loving kindness, but the ESV has steadfast love. Steadfast love. Now, each of these terms, each of these terms are used in the psalm seven times. Okay? Steadfast love and faithfulness. All of these, it should be evident, are from uh, Psalm 89. By the way, they were both used in Psalm 88. These two words were used in Psalm 88, 11. If you look back to what we covered last week, Psalm 88, 11, will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Loving kindness or steadfast love? Your faithfulness in Abaddon. So these things that are mentioned only in Psalm 88 as things that were they're absent in death. So this passage emphasizes this loving kindness of God in verse uh, 1, in verse 2, in verse 14, in verse um, 24, 28. 33 and 49. And I apologize that that writing is no better than it is. I, I probably wrote that up there too high. But so, seven times in the psalm, that word is used. And the word faithfulness is used also in verse 1, um, verse 2, verse 5. Verse 8, verse 24, verse 33, verse 49. These are not just key vocabulary words. These are key concepts in this particular psalm. So important as concepts. Uh, both, as we stated seven times, if you have... Um, Words that come from the same root, uh, you find a couple of more words that are connected. But loving kindness and faithfulness 
are part of the nature of God. Do you remember in Exodus 34 and verse 6? The Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Remember that? Loving kindness and truth. The same two words used here. Loving kindness and truth. Same two words that are used here. This is fundamental to the nature of God. And one of the things that is expressed in Psalm 89 is that God's loving kindness and God's faithfulness is demonstrating, especially in His promises to David, His promises to David that will be highlighted in verses 19 through 37. But you here see in verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. Through God's covenant with David and his plans to bless David and to bless his offspring, to raise up a king, to rule his people, God will demonstrate his loving kindness and God will demonstrate his faithfulness. In verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. This is a message that he wants to continue to sing. He wants to continue to burst forth in praise with this message. In verse 1, to all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. God, he's going to sing and make known God's loving kindness and God's faithfulness. For in verse 2, for I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. Again, both of those words, loving kindness and faithfulness. Loving kindness, pay attention to the word built up. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. But God says in verse 3, I made a covenant with my chosen I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed, your descendants forever, and build up your throne to all generations. Now, I stated we're going to come back to that word build up. Here is our chance. If the word is used both in verse 2 and in verse 4. Now, that word is especially a key word. The Hebrew word is translated build up. Is a word that is very important in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, that chapter begins with David's desire to build the Lord a house. David desires to build the Lord a house. And the Lord says, no. David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build your house. And when David talked about building the Lord a house, he's talking about building the temple. When God talks about building his house, he's talking about a dynasty, a family of rulers. And God says to David, whose conscience is bothering him because the Lord has done so much more for him than he has done for the Lord. And he says, Lord, I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord says, no, 
I'm going to do even more for you. I'm going to build up your house. And this word that is a key word in 2 Samuel 7 about God building up the Davidic line. God building up his family. It appears in verse 2 and in verse 4. And God's loving kindness, God's faithfulness is demonstrated. It is built up in these promises to David. By the way, the term faithfulness is the word, the root word in Hebrew is a word you all know. And a word that many of you have already said tonight, amen. And uh, that is uh, the word, the basic root of that word, faithfulness. Scott? In my Bible, here's the New King James Version. Mm -hmm. The first sentence is, uh, the first verse uses the word mercies instead of the loving kindness. So that's interchangeable, the mercies. That is this, they're looking at the same Hebrew word. And it is strange. How many different English translations? We've already got mercies. And, and I want to come back to, to, to what you're saying there. We've already got loving kindness, steadfast love, and mercies. What else do you all have? Any other translations? I have just kindness. Just kindness. Just kindness. Anything else? I show that that word's translated goodness sometimes as well. Okay, translate goodness. The word in Hebrew is actually plural in verse 1. And that's why it's in mercies instead of... In some translations, I looked at the New American Standard and uh, it says loving kindness. But it, sometimes the New American Standard, when this word is plural, will say loving kindnesses. <laughs> I never thought about doing this till I heard a preacher mention this in a sermon. And I thought, I'm going to try this. He said, try, uh, try typing loving kindness into a spell check sometime. And it's going to tell you it's not a word. It's a made up word. It's a made up word. <laughs> it's going to tell you that. And, uh, but the thing is, it, it, all of these mercies, steadfast love, loving kindness, great love, loving kindness, faithful grace love, faithful love, and, and uh, mercy, uh, all of these convey a, an idea of a God whose love doesn't give up on us. A God who continues to love in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, in spite of our failure. And God does that for Israel. So all these English translations are doing their best to translate this word, which may be outside of the various names for God, the most important name in the book, the most important Hebrew word in the book of Psalms. Because it's used, this word is used like 128 times in the book of Psalms. So it's a, it's a very, very important word. Okay, verse 5. Verse 5. Notice this the awe of God. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Okay, he talks about in verse 5 the assembly of the holy ones. 
Then in verse 6, verse 6, For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? So the assembly of the holy ones is kind of uh, parallel in verse 6 to the sons of the mighty. I, I think all of these are references to angels in their place of praising God in heaven. In verse 7, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. All of these are ways to refer to the angelic host. All of these are ways to refer to the angelic beings. And the point that's being emphasized in verse 5, 6, and 7 is that in heaven, God is constantly being praised. Just as you see the angels saying, glory to God in the highest in Luke 2, 2, 14. As you see the angels praising God in Revelation 4, this is what happens in God's throne. Now you think about that just a second. When men encountered angels in the Bible, they were paralyzed with fear. And they thought they were going to die. You see that uh, in the case of uh, Gideon in Judges 6 and Samson's parents in Judges 13. Those are just a couple of examples. When they saw angels, they were overwhelmed. They thought they were going to die. And yet, they all praise God. They all proclaim His greatness. They know that there's no one among them who can begin to compare with Him. In verse 6, who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? Who can compare with this God? With this God. In verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. There is none like you. None can compare. No God is equal. No prince is heir. God is absolutely incomparable. And even the greatest of created beings, the angels, bow and reverence before Him. All of this leads us to see that God is the center of everything. And all our eyes need to be focused upon Him and upon His glory. In verse 9, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you steal them. I read this comment often. Uh, I'm not usually given, I don't remember most commentaries or most books when they make this statement, giving a lot of documentation, unless they're just mentioning a few other scriptures, but it says the ancient Hebrews were terrified of the sea. Um, 
I don't know how widespread that was among all the ancient Hebrews, but uh, I want to tell you, from just taking one ship across the English Channel for like two hours, I'm terrified of the sea too. I don't want to be out there and to think about what it would be like to be in the middle of the Pacific or the middle of Atlantic and a horrible storm came up where you were utterly helpless before it. And yet the Bible often emphasizes God's power over the sea. This statement in verse 9 that you rule the swelling of the sea. A similar statement is made in Psalm 65, verse 7. Psalm 65, verse 7. Who steals, is speaking of God, let me start in verse 6 to give you a little bit more context. Who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the tumult of the people. God steals the roaring of the sea. Look at Psalm 107. Psalm 107 and verse 29. I love this psalm when we get there, Lord willing, one day. But Psalm 107 verse 29, He calls the storm to be still. So the waves of the sea will hush. God can quiet the wind and the waves. God can call up the waves as he did in Jonah's case. God can cause them to cease. The more one would be terrified of the sea, the more powerful this description of God As God is one who rules the swelling of the sea, He quiets its waves, He steals its waves. And in verse 10, He crushes Rahab. He crushes Rahab. Um, Okay. Um, Who remembers our discussion of Rahab from two weeks ago? Um... Because Rahab is mentioned in Psalm 87, verse 4. Um, does anybody remember anything about that? Vicky remembers something. I saw, her, I saw her hand go up. David was trying to point at somebody else up here. On the, it looked like it, David. But I, I, I think he's probably just holding your hand to the side. But Vicky, what do you have? Egypt. Okay. It seems to refer to Egypt in some passages like Psalm 87, 4. And very definitely in Isaiah 30, verse 7. David, what else were you going to add? I was going to say Egypt. Okay. Verse of Egypt. And sometimes it's just kind of a picture of a great monster that wants to devour. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. So you weren't with us a couple weeks ago. You said, poor old Rahab. This is her punishment for keeping the spies. In Hebrew, it is a different spelling. Okay? The middle letter is different in this creature 
and Rahab the harlot of Joshua 2. It's, it's translated the same way in English because one has more of a CH sound and one has more of an H sound. But it, it actually is two different letters in, in Hebrew. But sometimes it's a great monster who wants to devour a God's people. And some of the passages that we use that use this term were Isaiah 51 9 and uh, Job 9 in verse 13, I believe. It's Job 9 13 and Job 26 verse 12. Okay, but this is a way to picture the most formidable of all foes, the greatest of all enemies, a monster who could destroy us. It is a way to describe the most evil of foes and it says, you yourself have crushed them. Do you remember We've said before, and I know this will be, this will be new for, for Scott and Kyle, but we have stated that generally in Hebrew, generally in Hebrew, the person that is acting, the person who's acting is indicated in the verb. If there is a separate personal pronoun, it is for added emphasis. The New American Standard does well in verse 10 because it uh, says, you yourself crushed Rahab. That's about the way it says it in Hebrew. You yourself. Because it uses the separate personal pronoun, then it uses the verb, which already includes the subject, to emphasize it is God who has done this. And that emphatic you, that emphatic you is used of God in 89.9 twice, 89.10, and then 11 and 12. In these four verses, five times, it uses a separate personal pronoun to emphasize that God has done these things and God alone can do these things. You yourself crushed Rahab like one that's slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. In verse 11, the mountain, excuse me, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. God is the creator of all. The heavens are his. The, the earth is his. All that is in between and all that is beneath in the seas, all of it belongs to God. To God belong in verse 12, the north and the south. Tabor and Herman shout for joy at God's name. Tabor and Herman, what were those? What were those places? Mountains. Mountains. Mount Herman is about 9,000 feet. Mount Tabor, uh, think about it. Maybe it's 1,000, maybe it's a little 2,000. But, it's, but these are larger mountains in this area. Uh, the gods were often viewed as dwelling in the mountains in pagan mythology and but it is these mountains that 
that rejoice at God's presence, the true God's presence, the true God who is uh, all-powerful, who is uh, loving and kind and faithful and true, this God can break and crush the mightiest of foes. Now, there's always things we haven't begun to touch upon but, but any ideas right there or any questions you have? Uh, one thing you said that just created a question every time that uh, the angels are the greatest creation of God. Mm-hmm. Where does the verse say that or fit in that says we will judge angels? First mm-hmm. Corinthians 6, verse 2 says that. And um, um, obviously those angels who have fallen will not experience the eternal blessing that some of God's people will and, and that's well I'm not going to try to get off but I still I do still believe that's true of angels uh, but I understand the difficulty. That doesn't mean that the fallen angels, the wicked angels, uh, they have because their because their role and their place in God's creation was even higher. That fall is even more disastrous, and they will be judged by God's people who remain faithful. But it's a good question. Good question, but. Just don't have a good answer too much, but. Oh, that was good. Okay. <laughs> what else? Anything? Do you have a thought there, David? Okay, Christy, did you? I didn't. Okay. Um, I um. Let's pick up in verse thirteen. You have a strong arm. Your right hand is mighty. Your, your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Your God's... Most people are right-handed. How many people, Isaiah, in the world are, are, about, are left-handed? It's going up. Is it? Okay. Um, <laughs> well, what I've read, it's 11. It's 11 percent. Yeah. So, <laughs> we're going to take over. Okay. Um, but it's about 11 percent. It has apparently always been that way. And so the right hand seems to be synonymous with power. Uh, It's used like in Exodus 15, verse 6 that way, in Exodus 15, verse 12. Did you have further? Well, we just read in, wasn't it Judges, where the left handed men from Benjamin? Benjamin, yes. So it was like it it was such a. Curious fact that they had to really make a big deal about it. Exactly, and Benjamin means, as some of you heard me say before, son of my right hand. And, and, and they're famous for their left-handed warriors. First, you have Ehud in Judges three, and then you have those in in Judges twenty who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss, which is pretty good. And uh, but then, even in the time of Saul, uh, the Bible says in First Chronicles twelve, I believe verse two, that they have. Warriors who could use either their right hand or left hand equally well. Uh, they were amphibians. Yeah, yeah. 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 so. 
but, but I, I'm, I'm sorry I take that joke every time when you get but but it is it, it is singled out the way it's singled out just highlights its uniqueness because that is a very very rare thing and God's power is often demonstrated by his right hand I do not think God's left hand is ever mentioned in scripture unless it mentions like he, you know, his right and left together. I do not think it's mentioned separately. But in verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of, of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Now, uh, this word loving kindness, loving kindness is our uh, one of the key uses of that particular word. This particular use of the word truth uh, is it is a well it ought to be up there too. Hmm. Okay, so both of these key words it is, I thought I was thinking it was a different word, but it's the same word. Both of these passages use this. Okay, I'm not, I'm not speaking here well or clearly. Let, let me try to pull this together. What verse 14 says, these are part of the very fabric on which the universe is built. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Loving kindness and truth go before him. They are the very fabric on which the universe is built. They are central to the way God has revealed himself to Israel and they are demonstrated his loving kindness and truth is demonstrated in his promises to David. The whole Bible really is a story of God's loving kindness and God's truth and in verse 15, how blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O oh Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. I think when you look at old hymns and you look at the book of Psalms, you look at the book of Isaiah, you see where a lot of expressions come from. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And, and, and the word translated joyful sound here in verse 15, it's used around uh, 36 to 40 times in the Old Testament. And it could refer to the sounding of the trumpet on the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25 and verse 9. Uh, it can refer to the shouting of Israel at the walls of Jericho in Joshua 6 verse 5. But here, this is a shout, a shout of joy at the greatness of God, at the righteousness and justice of God. And by the way, back in verse 14, when it mentions God's throne, kings wanted to be said to do justice and righteousness. The true God is always a king that does righteousness and justice. They are the foundation of his throne. In verse 16. In your name they rejoice all the day. And by your righteousness they are exalted. Just think of all the characteristics of God that are mentioned in this psalm. 
In your name they rejoice all the day. By your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Now, all of this focusing on God... People are rejoicing in verse 16 in His name. And we are exalted in His righteousness. Your righteousness, they are exalted. Verse 17, they give God the glory for all their strength. A horn, which is a symbol of strength, is God who exalts the horn of the weak. And in verse Verse 18, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. In verse 18, the shift begins a little bit. I I don't want to say completely because God is always front and center in this psalm. God is always front and center in all the Bible. But in this particular text, the, the scene, it shifts a little bit of the emphasis from God to the human being who will be a big part of the discussion in verses 19 through 37. So, that is profound in ways that I can't completely express or write that. But how powerful those words. Let those words give you comfort and strength when your vision of God is too small. And and one thing I can say of everybody without being insulting is to say your view of God is too too small. And I can say that because of Ephesians 3.20. Your God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all you ask or think. So however long your thoughts of God, they fall short of who He is. That's true of me. That's true of you. May God help us to keep our mind focused on Him. Now, we don't have to mention everything here because Lord willing, we'll have at least one more class on Psalm 89. And I I know at this time, you're thankful that I decided to break it up and not cover it all in one night. But I do want to say just a couple of things about how Jesus reveals Psalm 89. There's more to come, and so even if you want to bring other verses in this section into the discussion later, that's fine. But look at what's said in Psalm 89 and verse 9. 89 and verse 9. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You, uh, when its waves rise, you still them. God rules the seas. God tames the mighty waters. God holds them in His hand. Now think about that passage.
when you see the disciples on the boat with Jesus, and Jesus is asleep, the only time in the life of Jesus he is ever pictured as asleep is when this storm is raging outside. He's asleep. Everyone else is frantic. He's asleep. And it's interesting. I mean, you have at least four of the apostles who were professional fishermen. They knew about storms in the Sea of Galilee. But this wasn't a normal storm. But they thought they were all going to drown. And they wake him up. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And so they wake him up from his sleep. And he gets up and he says, peace, be still. And all the noise and all the thunder and the lightning, all of it suddenly grows immediately. And the disciples ask, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. He is God come to flesh. But there's just one more passage, and I admit, I didn't break down everything here because I know we're going to get a chance, Lord willing, later. But I'll tell you something else that struck me. That statement in verse 10. You crushed right out. Let me tell you a couple of other verses in the Old Testament that use that same Hebrew word. Some of you will recognize it. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The the chastising for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. That is Isaiah 53 and verse 5. Isaiah 53 verse 5. And verse 10 will use the same verb, crushed. Verse 10 will use the same verb. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering he will see his offspring he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand both of these passages talk about God crushing Christ for our sins and for our transgressions for God who could control the winds and the waves. But God came in the person of Jesus, submitting to the will of His Father in heaven. And the same God who crushes the ruthless foe like Rahab, that God crushes His Son so that you and I can be saved. I want to tell you, We should never weary of hearing the gospel story 
of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus at the very heart of it. And there is, there are so many different ways the Bible keeps bringing us around to that same truth. Over and over and over again. Okay. Thank you guys. Uh, any Isaiah? Uh, can you talk about verse three yeah? Uh, go ahead and I may I may stop you if you get beyond verse eighteen, but go ahead and try. No, that covenant with David. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. <coughs> Are you gonna you're gonna wait for later? I'm gonna wait on that because verses nineteen through thirty seven. What's that? It's kind of a big one. It is a big one. It is a big one. I'm not minimizing it. I'm just waiting because we have a whole lot more on that to come. Okay. But that is yes. His promises, uh, his covenant with David. Um, man, we could have a separate lesson on that just itself and kind of trace that thing throughout Scripture. And uh, it, is, it is great. So, not that your question is good, but um, we've already used up an hour. So, But thank you guys. And um, as, we, as we close, Craig, would you lead us in prayer? God, our Father, you are just and righteous and, and holy, and we are so in awe of you and your great power. Your, your presence in our lives is everything that we need. We depend on you, and we are nothing without you. Thank you for demonstrating your, your steadfast love towards us in, in the sending of your Son and all of your, your great deeds throughout time. You are so patient and gracious with us, and we praise you for that. We thank you for that. Help us to rely on, on what is offered through Christ. Help us to take advantage of the great gift that he offers. And, uh, we are so grateful for the time that we had tonight to study together and, and appreciate more about who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.